Hi, listeners. This is Understand South Carolina, a news podcast from the Post and Courier. I'm Emily Williams. And I'm Matt Rasnick. A bill to ban most abortions in South Carolina is moving closer to becoming signed into law. Like similar abortion bans in other states, it's expected to get tied up in the courts and challenged as unconstitutional. But it's also something Republican lawmakers have been trying to pass for years. So why is it advancing now and what will happen if it becomes law? Today we'll be talking with political reporter Jamie Lovegrove, who has been following the debate on this bill in the State House. We'll also hear from Mary Ziegler, a law professor at Florida State University and author of the book Abortion in the Law in America, about the legal implications of this bill. I'm Jamie Lovegrove, and I'm a political reporter at the Post and Courier. Let's start by breaking down the details of this bill. As we said in the intro, this would effectively ban most abortions in South Carolina. How would it do that? And what does this bill say? So the bill would prevent physicians or abortion providers from providing abortions after a fetal or embryonic heartbeat is detected. There's some debate about whether or not it can really be termed a heartbeat, but Supporters of this bill, you know, argue that, that is the point at which life could be considered to have started. There are some, you know, anti-abortion activists who believe it actually should be earlier than that. But that is about six to eight weeks on average in most pregnancies. Opponents of this bill note that that's earlier than a lot of women may even realize they are pregnant. They may miss their opportunity to get an abortion by that point. But so we're looking at six to eight weeks. The current South Carolina law is about 20 weeks, which is already one of the earliest bans in the country. You know, so, so we're already on the vanguard in that sense. And, and now we're looking to join states that have already passed similar bills to this one. And did they add any exceptions to that bill? They did. In the Senate, they added exceptions for cases of rape or incest. There are also exceptions if the life of the mother would be in danger uh, without an abortion. Or if, you know, the child has an anomaly that would be fatal outside of the womb. So there's sort of four exceptions in that sense. You know, it leaves some discretion for the physician to determine whether or not the fetal anomaly is fatal or whether the life of the mother is in danger. And in the cases of rape or incest, there's also provision that would require any physician who performs an abortion due to that exception to report the name and the contact information and the details of the woman who is alleging the rape or incest. They're not required to, to press charges. They're not required to file a criminal report, but they are required to to tell the local sheriff and the state health agency that they have performed an abortion due to the rape or incest exception. South Carolina already bans abortions after 20 weeks. This would ban them much earlier Do we know at this point how many abortions are happening after that six-week mark? More than half of them. I think the latest data from 2019 from the state health agency was about 55% of abortions were happening after that six- to eight-week period. So, you know, we could safely say that this bill would ban most abortions in South Carolina. I know we'll get to this, but it's important to note that this is not going to take effect anytime soon. But if it ever were to take effect years down the line, it it would ban more than half of the abortions that are currently performed in South Carolina. If passed, will it take effect at all? There's a good chance it will never take effect. 
if it were to take effect, it would likely be years down the line. What's going to happen is a playbook that we've seen happen in the close to a dozen other states that have passed bills like this, which is that the day it is passed, there will be lawsuits filed. The court will almost certainly grant an injunction halting the bill from taking effect, and then the appeals process will begin. The lower courts are very constrained when it comes to this issue because they are bound by Supreme Court precedent in the landmark Roe v. Wade 1973 decision that found that women have the constitutional right to access abortions within certain boundaries, uh, you know, that they, they did allow for some restrictions to take effect, but not so extreme that it would unreasonably inhibit women from getting abortions at any point in their pregnancies. You know, the lower courts really do not have the flexibility to, even if they wanted to, even if you have a judge who is pro-life, who believes that Roe v. Wade was incorrectly decided, they are not going to be able to uphold this. So at that point, we're going to head into a very lengthy appeals process. It's going to go up to the Fourth Circuit. And again, they are almost certainly going to rule that this bill is unconstitutional. The only way that this bill will ever take effect, realistically, is if the Supreme Court decides to take up this bill or any of the other bills that have been passed in, in the other states that have passed these bills, decides to take it up and effectively either reverse or significantly amend that Roe v. Wade decision. Now, you know, there are some in, in the anti-abortion movement who believe that that's possible now because of the fact that the court is more conservative than it has been in years past. Of course, President Trump appointed three justices who were viewed as fairly conservative jurists. However, you know, the court so far, even with those three additions, has shown that they are, do not have much of an appetite to be doing this at least anytime soon. They have so far, as of this taping, not even taken up a court case from Mississippi, which would be a 15-week ban. So we're talking about double the length of this one, comparatively much less extreme, and they don't actually even want to take that up. Most legal experts believe that it's, it's pretty unlikely to happen anytime soon. Even the supporters of this bill know and ad admit and acknowledge that this is not going to take effect soon. But the idea in their mind is to put pressure on the Supreme Court to see that there are a number of states that want to pass bills like this and to, to consider changing their precedent. So with all of this in mind, knowing that it's unlikely that this bill will take effect, we are still seeing debate amongst lawmakers in the state house in terms of whether or not to pass this bill and just this week at a house committee there was some pretty heated debate between democrats and republicans on this but is it much of a debate right now in terms of whether or not it's going to be passed by the legislature or is that pretty defined at this point we're really going through the motions at this point they are not skipping any steps in the process they are taking this bill through every step in the process but everyone on both sides of this debate knows how it's going to end Nobody's votes are really up in the air. There are maybe one or two or three members of the House at most who are undecided about how they're going to vote on this bill or could be persuaded to change their minds. You know, this has been a very partisan process. In the Senate, 
one Republican voted against it, one Democrat voted for it. Other than that, it was along party lines. In the House, I would imagine it will be almost exactly the same. You know, the fact of the matter is that Republicans have effectively supermajorities in both chambers at this point. There were already very few tools at Democrats' disposal to stop this in the past. They were able to effectively do it for several years. This is by far not the first time Republicans have tried to do this. It has passed the House multiple times already. The hurdle in the past for Republicans has been the Senate, where there are more tools for the minority to try to gum up the works, use filibusters to try to stop bills from getting passed. And they were able to do that. But Republicans gained three seats uh, in the Senate, flipped Democratic seats in the 2020 elections. And in the words of of Gilda Cobb Hunter, one of the the longest serving Democrats in the House, elections have consequences. And and as she said, the consequence of, of that election, one of the consequences of that election is that this bill is definitely going to pass. At this point, it is pretty much set in stone. Everyone knows what is coming. It gives the folks who are planning to file lawsuits plenty of time to prepare their lawsuits. They all know they're not going to have to rush to, to file anything last minute. It'll be ready to go the minute this bill is signed by Government Master, who has promised for many years that he's going to sign it. So yeah, in many ways, everyone in the legislature is basically reading from a script that has already been written and rehearsed several times over the years, and at this point is is a foregone conclusion. What are Democrats saying, and how have Republicans defended advancing this bill and pursuing it, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic? There are obviously a litany of, of arguments that folks who are opposed to this bill have put forward. You know, on a broad level, of course, it boils down to the, the simple debate we've had over abortion for many decades, which is Mostly Democrats and folks who support abortion access believe that it should be up to a woman to choose what to do with, you know, a fetus inside their own body and and to determine, you know, make their own choices. For Republicans or anti-abortion folks, they view that fetus as an unborn child deserving of the same rights as any other living human, and they they view abortion as as murder. One of the relatively interesting arguments beyond that sort of basic level in this case has been the cost of what is going to to happen after this. Because of the fact that we know this is going to lead to court cases, Republicans typically care both about social conservatism and also fiscal conservatism. You know, they, they are the party that does not want the state to be wasting money. Democrats have pointed out that, I mean, this is going to cost the state millions of dollars, almost certainly, to defend in court. We've already seen in a Texas case, similar to this, that it cost the state $2.6 million, dollars million. They were defending it in court. Almost certainly, if, if the state loses this case, they will be on the hook to pay for the attorneys of the other side. So you could see millions of dollars from South Carolina taxpayers going to Planned Parenthood going to the ACLU, going to the organizations that are going to be opposing this law in the courts because, you know, the courts will grant them attorney's fees. You know, the Democrats have really pushed that message particularly hard that this is going to be a waste of time, a waste of money, a waste of manpower, and that this is, you know, really all for show and that that money could be going towards things that would 
make the lives of South Carolinians better. You know, Republicans have responded to that. Senate Majority Leader Shane Massey at the end of their debate said that, you know, he believes that, you know, that that's a small price to pay if this bill ends up saving the lives of of thousands of unborn children. That's their words. That that would be a valuable proposition for the states to defend. So in large part, these two sides have really been talking past each other for most of this debate. Again, there has been very little persuasion going on on either side, but they have spent many, many hours talking about it. I imagine that the House floor debate coming up soon will also involve a few more hours of debate. But again, it's mostly to show the public on each side of this issue that they care. You know, Republicans want to show their voters that they care about this issue. Democrats want to show their voters that they care about this issue. But both sides know that ultimately it's going to make no difference in terms of the outcome. What about the public? Have you been able to hear people other than legislators speak to their opinions on this bill? And I'm wondering, too, do we have a sense of just generally what South Carolina's population thinks about abortion and more specifically a a ban like this one? We have had multiple opportunities over the years, frankly, to hear from the public on this issue because every single year that this bill comes up, there is a subcommittee hearing and at subcommittees, the public has the opportunity to, to testify. In those hearings that normally go on for five, six, seven hours, you hear from folks all over the political spectrum You hear from a lot of women who fear the impact this would have for them. You also hear from from pro-life women as well who say that they support this. And and then you also hear from from folks who say this is not not going far enough, that South Carolina should ban all abortions, period, no exceptions, and have pushed the legislature to go further than they are. Polling in South Carolina and around the country on this issue, yeah, I mean, you know, it can be all over the map. In general, a small group of voters cares about this issue more than any other. Most voters care about other issues, but they do have opinions on abortion. There are significant swaths of the population that believe that abortion should be legal but rare. But the debate here is mostly focused on those voters who care about it more than any other issue. You know, those are folks who vote in in primaries, which is in some of these very safe legislative seats, what these lawmakers care about. You know, Republicans really care about winning Republican primaries because they know they are safe in the general election in a lot of districts in South Carolina. And Republican primary voters will use this as, as a litmus test. The fact of the matter is that on election day, Republicans performed extremely well in South Carolina. They picked up seats in the legislature. They won statewide races. They picked up a congressional seat. And every single one of those Republican candidates, almost every single one of those Republican candidates, was running in part on a anti-abortion platform. You've explained that a lot of this is, is really going through the motions at this point, but what's next? So next it will go to the House floor for a full vote by the House. You know, again, the House has already passed this bill multiple times before when they had smaller Republican majorities. So it's going to pass in a landslide. 
and then it'll head to, to Governor McMaster's desk, likely within the next week or two. And at that point, we will begin the court fight probably that very same day. Then we begin what is going to be a process that takes multiple years. It will eventually kind of die from the headlines a little bit because the court process is much slower than the legislative process. You know, they have passed this bill effectively in a month and they are going to be fighting over it in the courts for years. And so that is going to be kind of happening in the background. The only headline that really matters at this point is if or when the Supreme Court decides to take it up. If they do, everything could change. If they don't, it's never going to take effect. On January 28th, the Senate voted 30 to 13 in favor of the bill. The only Democrat to vote for it was State Senator Kent Williams of Marion, who didn't explain his reasoning in advance. The only Republican to vote against it was State Senator Sandy Sen of Charleston. She explained her reasoning to fellow legislators. I have repeatedly asked my colleagues who bring bills like this, such as heartbeat and personhood, year after year, to do something that will really make a difference, and that is to take baby steps toward better legislation. I do not think our current law of allowing abortions up to 20 weeks is good law. I think that that is too long. Uh, two more weeks in the womb now with our medical science, then we would have a viable baby. But what happens is the bills that get put out here year after year go so ridiculously far in the other direction that it causes even we conservatives to have consternation. The bill took another step closer to passage February 9th when it advanced out of a House committee. The House could approve the abortion limits as soon as next week. Governor Henry McMaster has strongly supported the bill and has told legislators he's ready to sign it. And let this be the year that we further protect the sanctity of life with the heartbeat bill. It's time to vote. Send me the heartbeat bill and I will immediately sign it into law. But if it is signed into law, what are the legal implications? My name's Mary Ziegler. I'm the Stearns Weaver Miller Professor at Florida State University of Law. Um, I study the history of the abortion debate, and my most recent book is called Abortion in the Law in America, a Roe v. Wade to the Present. We've seen very similar bills passed in other states, Georgia, Louisiana, Ohio, and people are most familiar with hearing them described as heartbeat bills. Well, when did we start seeing so many of these? It's worth starting out by saying this is obviously not like a homegrown South Carolina law. This is part of the model legislation campaign that started actually in Ohio around 2011. I think that's true, of course, of most pro-life or anti-abortion legislation, depending on your point of view. In recent years, almost all of it has come from either from Washington, D.C. or from outside of the state. The heartbeat bills in particular were the work of a woman named Janet Folger Porter. Porter had, you know, some connections to what I guess I would call kind of like the pro-life or anti-abortion establishment, like National Right to Life Committee. She was the head for a time of, you know, the affiliate in that state. But eventually, I think that relationship fell apart, both because Porter thought that the, the anti-abortion or pro-life establishment was too 
cautious. And also because Porter herself said and did some pretty controversial things, right? So she had a, a radio show and said, you know, among other things that then President Obama was going to use swine flu to put people in internment camps and, you know, it was sort of like a loose cannon, I think, from the standpoint of some in the movement. But she began pushing heartbeat bills in 2011 on the theory that the kind of incremental attack on Roe v. Wade that had been unfolding in the states was going too slow. And at first, the bills didn't really go that far, right? There weren't that many people who were interested in the strategy because they thought it was futile. And then we fast forward to 2019, when President Trump has put Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court, creating what most people assume is a conservative majority, a lot more states begin experimenting with heartbeat bills. The theory behind heartbeat bills as a sort of strategy to reverse Roe, because if we're being honest, that's what they started out as being, was that the court might hesitate to allow for abortion bans from conception, which is, of course, what the pro-life movement would want. They would want some kind of, as Porter framed it, scientifically certain alternative to viability which is the point at which states can currently ban abortion. And Porter argued that there was nothing clearer or more certain than a heartbeat. So that after 2019, we saw a kind of spike in these bills. And now states like South Carolina that may have been a little more hesitant are even more confident because now there are six conservative justices on the Supreme Court rather than five. And so the race to be the state that undoes Roe v. Wade is on. Even though we've seen these bills pass in other states, of course, they're not in effect in, in any states because they're tied up in the courts. So can you speak some to how we've seen the passage of these bills play out in other states? What is South Carolina going to see when we most likely do pass this bill? There'll almost certainly be at least one, probably several constitutional challenges to the bill. Groups that challenge these kinds of bills, like the American Civil Liberties Union or the Center for Reproductive Rights. This isn't their first rodeo. This isn't the first heartbeat bill they've seen. So they will probably go to federal district court to challenge the bill. The federal district court, unless or until the Supreme Court reverses Roe v. Wade, will have no choice but to say the bill is unconstitutional. The same will be true of the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals. It, basically, this is just a bid. This law will not go into effect unless the U.S. Supreme Court overturns Roe. And it's worth saying that it's it's quite unlikely this would be the heartbeat bill that would do it. Because if the Supreme Court's strategic intention is to use a heartbeat bill to overturn Roe v. Wade, there's already kind of an embarrassment of riches to choose from, right? There are lots and lots of heartbeat bills from lots and lots of states. And so South Carolina, if the goal is to be the state to overturn Roe, there is, lawmakers are kind of late to the party. Like you said, it's, it's unlikely that South Carolina's heartbeat bill would be the one to get to the Supreme Court. But I guess my other question is, right now, do you see these heartbeat bills as the most likely challenge to Roe? Or are there other legal challenges out there that could be taking Roe to the Supreme Court again? The people who have led the D.C.-based pro-life movement for decades have always thought that even with a conservative supermajority, you would have to chip away at Roe before you went for the touchdown, right? I don't, and I think they came to that view from years of experience, and I think they're still likely to be right. It's hard to know, right, at the end of the day, because we have three new justices, Brett Kavanaugh, 
Amy Coney Barrett and Neil Gorsuch, who have said and done relatively little about abortion. So we're kind of, you know, guessing based on not a lot of evidence. But there's definitely some concern among some of the conservatives about the court's image as a nonpartisan, non-ideological institution, right? So I think if the court is likely to overturn Roe, which I still think is the case, they're likely to want to do it as a kind of death by a thousand cuts and in that process to kind of make their case to the public that Roe is really bad law. That makes things like heartbeat bills, which really are designed to be kind of almost a shortcut, right? You immediately get rid of Roe in one fell swoop, are not likely to appeal to people like especially Chief Justice Roberts, but I think quite possibly Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett too. So if I were vetting, I would say the court would dismantle Roe piece by piece in a process that would take a lot of time and that heartbeat bills would be unattractive for that reason. And quite obviously, folks who've supported heartbeat bills have said things like, we want to force the U.S. Supreme Court's hand. And anyone who's been paying attention to the U.S. Supreme Court knows that these people have lifetime appointments and you can't force them to do anything. They could ignore the abortion issue altogether for years if they chose to. As someone who has studied abortion and the law, what is on your radar right now? What are you looking out for in terms of those potential major developments for the future of of Roe? There's more uncertainty, I think, than people believe, right? One, I think it's hard to be certain, no matter who is on the court, that the justices will pull the trigger when the moment comes. Uh, We have a pretty clear historical example of that in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which is actually the law right now. There were basically six justices then as now who were expected to overrule Roe. And when the moment came, three Republican nominees balked and made it much easier for lawmakers to restrict abortion access, but didn't actually outright overrule Roe. And I think the bills the courts are most likely to be attracted to in the short term would be probably, there are so-called dismemberment abortion bills that focus on a particular late-term abortion procedure called uh, dilation and evacuation. And there are lots of states that ban that or require people to have additional procedures before that happens. And I think that's a possibility because it builds on a previous victory for the the, uh, anti-abortion or pro-life movement. And I think it's actually more likely, I mean, ironically, given uh, what South Carolina is doing, that laws that are already on the books in South Carolina, laws like that are more likely to end up at the Supreme Court than the new one. This is not likely to be the final word on what abortion restrictions in South Carolina will look like, in part because lawmakers are going to have to grapple with the question of enforcement because South Carolina is close to states that are probably not going to ban abortion, right? It's not very far from Florida. People could drive further or get on a plane. And I think even more to the point, medication abortion can be purchased on the internet and access to medication abortion is likely to become even easier under the Biden administration which many people will believe will eliminate an in-person requirement for medication abortion. And so I think even if this is 
what South Carolina lawmakers would like the law to look like, they're going to really have to revisit the issue of whether they want to punish women. I don't think they really want to have that debate immediately, but the issue of medication abortion, I think, is going to put pressure on them to do that because punishing the person who prescribes the medication is going to be quite difficult because that person almost certainly is going to be in a state where abortion is legal. That person is probably not going to be subject to extradition from that state. That person might not even be in the United States. And same goes for if the person drives you know, to Florida or some other state where abortion is legal. No matter what lawmakers are saying in terms of this being the kind of final word on what the abortion laws of South Carolina would look like in a post-Roe world, um, it's probably more the beginning of that conversation, not the end. Before we wrap up today, we're checking in on what newly elected Charleston County Sheriff Kristen Graziano has been doing in her first weeks in office. She's the first female and openly gay person to be elected sheriff in South Carolina. And you may remember she joined us for an interview on this podcast in November, just after the election, when she shared some of her plans for her first 100 days. So what has she done since being sworn in in January? And what did she have to say when she weighed in on a part of this abortion bill? My name is Sarah Coelho. I cover criminal justice in the Low Country for the Post and Courier. And over the last few weeks and months, we've been doing quite a lot with the new sheriff. Obviously, it's a big transition in the department. I think that the three big choices that have kind of drawn the most attention have been her new staffing system. She hasn't gotten rid of too many deputies, which is somewhat expected, but she did on her first day cancel the department's agreement with ICE. The Charleston County Jail will no longer be housing any of the immigrants who have been caught by ICE and then need to be brought through Charleston on their way to Atlanta. She says that's going to save the department a lot of money. Definitely one of those controversial things that she was talking about in her campaign as a way that she wants to unite the sheriff's department and communities that have not always been served by law enforcement well. Uh, Other than the staffing and that, uh, she got quite a lot of recognition even outside of South Carolina. A few weeks back when we were first talking about the fetal heartbeat bill, she spoke out on Twitter. She was very, very critical of it. Um, She says, as a woman and a sheriff, it just does not reflect her values. And she seems very concerned for what it would mean for rape survivors in Charleston County um, getting the kinds of services that she would like to provide. And uh, Jamie touched on that a little bit earlier, but let's let's go into some of the details of that. So this part of the bill would require a doctor who would perform abortion, an abortion that was a result of rape or incest to report the woman's name to the local sheriff. So can, can you speak a little bit more to what she said about it and, and why it was, you know, that detail in there specifically that she disagreed with? Her main issue is that she says, you know, in general, she seems to disagree with this bill. She says that politicians should not be dictating women's personal health decisions. But as a sheriff, she's very concerned that this will be re-traumatizing to someone who already has undergone something terrible. Currently, she's, you know, working with a department rule that when sex assault cases do come to the department, they're trying to treat them in a very victim-centric way, let the survivor decide exactly what they want to share and how they want to go forward with the case. And this would kind of put that more into the hands of law enforcement officers who would, you know, certainly be trained 
to have a victim-centric approach when possible, but it's still taking control out of the hands of someone who, in Graziano's mind, deserves as much control as can be given. All right, listeners, that's all for today. Do you have any questions about today's show or any ideas for what we should cover in a future episode? Write to us at understandsc at postandcourier.com or tweet us at understandsc. Be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter so you can be one of the first to hear about new episodes. By signing up at the link in our show notes before February 15th, you will automatically be entered for a chance to win a pair of Apple AirPods. Thanks, and we'll be back next week. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier. Our music is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music on Spotify at Billy Fountain. We'd love to know what you think of this show. You can reach us at understandsc at postandcourier.com or on Twitter at understandsc. If you're a fan of this show, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app. Keep up with the latest headlines at postandcourier.com. We'll see you all next week.